Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. Your word is quick and powerful, piercing to the and dividing asunder everything that stands in its way. The Bible says it's like a hammer. Nothing can stand against your word. And I thank you that as I preach, there are no restrictions. There are no restrictions. And every stronghold is coming down right now. As I preach, there is clarity and understanding in the hearts of the people, and they grow in their consciousness of who they are in you and what you've done for them, and they communicate this truth with their world, even boldly in Jesus' mighty name. We've prayed, say loud, amen, 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 and amen. All right, let's go on now. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 is where I'm going to begin today. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want you to make sure you have your writing materials, your Bibles with you, and as much as possible, open to the text so that we can read together. It says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. And perfect will of God, the Greek word translated prove actually means to approve, to endorse the will of God for your life. You see, if you're going to be able to endorse God's will for your life, you're going to have to know God's will for your life. As simple as that is that so profound. You're going to have to know it to endorse it. And when you know God's will for your life, then you will not be conformed to the world. Instead, you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, the same thing applies, you know, to your devotional experience. Don't be conformed to popular ideas. The fact that ideas, religious ideas are popular doesn't mean they are true. It may be popular and incorrect all the same. And be not confirmed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I take that again. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Greek word translated prove actually means to approve, to endorse all right, to allow the will of God in your life. Allow the will of God in your life. You can stand as a hindrance to the fulfillment of the will of God or to the experience of the will of God in your life. You need to approve it. And to approve it, you, you have to know what that will of God is. And if you don't know, you'll be conformed to the mold of the world. You see, and what's even more dangerous is that there are some people who are not in the world anymore. They are born again. They are saved. But somehow, instead of being conformed to the mode of the word of God, they are conformed to the mode of tradition and of religion. And that's dangerous. One of the worst things that can happen to anybody in their devotional life is for you to come to a point where you're ever learning and never able to come to the point of truth. And what's responsible for that? When you have preconceived notions 
about the image of God, uh, what God is like, incorrect preconceived notions about what God is like. I, I mean, you've watched many movies that have misrepresented God. I say that respectfully, even more respectfully. You've listened to many sermons that we have misrepresented the image of God. All right, and so we have the responsibility to make sure that our revelation of God and His Word, or I mean, is from His Word. It's so important. It's, it's a conscious step that we must take, all right, to make sure that we shed off every idea that is not of the Word of God. It may be popular, but I mean, let it fade away. And that's so important. That's so crucial. You see. You have to rethink your image of God because the God of the Bible and the God, you know, his popular image in popular, popular culture, they're two totally different things. A lot of us, when we close our eyes, we have an imagination of what we think Jesus looks like. And most times, I mean, more often than not, that image is from that picture on the wall that people used to <laughs> sell, you know, when we were young. And I can tell you categorically that image is wrong. So what image should we have? Let the word of God be your image. In my early Christian stages, I remember coming to realize that what I had th thought about Jesus, you know, needed serious renewal. I required mind renewal because I just couldn't imagine the Jesus that I had been taught about all my life doing some of the things that I saw him do in the Bible. I mean, Jesus would dine with sinners. Listen, many people, they excuse Jesus for doing these things per se. But it's a different thing when you see the wisdom. There are some places you will see a person. All right. And you will need the explanation for it. <laughs> you might not be bold enough to ask for it. But you just be wondering, what was pastor doing here? Do you understand what I'm saying? And then the point is this, and this is not taking for granted the fact that we have to be careful, you know, where we go because we are, we are, we are, we are products of influence, even as we seek to influence others as well. But the point is this, can we come to a point, all right, where we are more concerned about reaching souls, reaching the lost, than about how people see us? And that's how Jesus was. This is an important thing to think about. You know, many times I wonder to myself, um, can people actually have a pastor like Jesus? <laughs> a pastor that is always in the news. You know, um, the news blogs will read, oh, famous preacher sin with famous prostitute. What was the prostitute doing? She was rubbing her leg on his or her hair on his leg, you know, and, you know, rubbing ointment. You know, you hear things like that. Famous preacher found alone, you know, by, by a well with a Samaritan woman. You know, and all of that. The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus was tempted at all points, yet without sin. But the, what I just want to draw out of this is simply this. Many of us would rather protect our image than save his soul. Let me reconstruct that in a way that you will remember. Many of us would rather save our image than save his soul. And that's bad. You see, that's bad. But Jesus was always about the lost. He didn't mind being called friend of sinners. He didn't mind. What mattered to him the most 
was the lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. Think about that kind of Jesus standing in front of a woman, you know, who had five of us, still had a boyfriend, and he asked, you know, go and get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he did not rain fire and brainstorm on her immediately. You have to rethink Jesus. You have to rethink Jesus. And you see, you have to understand that we don't have movies acted by Paul or video sermons like this, you know, um, recorded by Paul so that we can learn from his body language and all of that. We have to rely on what is written. And we have to have a strict perspective to the written word where we want to make sure that what we take from it is what it actually says. Do you understand? Think about the advantages we have in terms of technology. You see, when it comes to communication, what I say is only about 20%. When it comes to effective communication, my hand movement, my body movement, my voice, the tone of my voice, everything, you know, plays a role in communication. But all we have is the written word when it comes to the word of God. And so we have to be strict and circumspect in our interpretation. Imagine if you came to a point where all that you knew about God and imagined about God was strictly from the word. Just imagine that. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't that be awesome? I want that to be your life. That's the life that God has called you to live. Why am I taking my time to say all this? It is because... A lot of people who think they understand the grace message don't. From my personal experience, a lot of people who claim to understand, they don't understand. And one proof that they don't understand it is, you know, they are quick to excuse it. They say, well, I know I believe in the grace of God, but I believe in the grace message, but can I tell you something? If you knew it, you wouldn't excuse it. And I want to say this not to make an argument, but just to tell you humbly, all right, Let's look into it properly. Don't have imaginations about God. Let's have revelation about God. Let's look into the word carefully. Let's see how God will have us learn about him and grow in his knowledge. And this is an honest appeal. An honest appeal to just look into the word. Shouldn't be so hard now, should it? All right. How can we know accurately who God is? From the word of God. You see, like I said earlier, you have to rely on what is written. All right. And in language, there are things that help us emphasize, you know, points. And there are many examples I can give. But one beautiful tool in language that helps our understanding and our discernment is adjectives. What are adjectives? Adjectives are simply words, you know, that describe the attributes of a person. If I say, go into the kitchen, get me a cup. You might want to say, which cup? And I'm going to say, the big one. And you're like, oh, there are five big ones. Which? Say, the big or the red big cup. All right. So, you see, adjectives throw more light and more more understanding on a now, on a person, or on, on a thing. And I said that to say this, 
when it comes to the message of grace, there are what I call adjectives of grace. And that's what I've been doing since the month started. When I say grace is a revelation, grace is a gift, grace is a seal, those are adjectives because, you see, as we spread it thin, spread the subject thin, you know, or stretch it out with adjectives, you're more likely to get the picture clearer. Can I tell you something? You see, um, details will be the proof of depth. Anything that you truly understand, you can talk about it in a very clear, elaborate manner. You are more likely to summarize when you don't know much about it. And so we're just stretching the subject so that you can get it, especially with adjectives. The Bible is replete with adjectives of grace. It might not have been called adjectives of grace in the Bible, but I'm telling you there are adjectives of grace. And we're going to look at some right now. But let me give you this hilarious illustration just to emphasize how necessary adjectives are. You see, when you say, my daddy is rich, in some contexts, that might be misleading. Because, hey, your daddy is rich, and Dangote is also rich. And I mean that respectfully. You know, so in some contexts, we might need to explain or at least distinguish <laughs> Dangote from your daddy. You understand that I mean that? I'm just saying this, I'm, I'm jokingly serious, you know, just to portray the point to, so that you remember. So we might introduce a word like this, an expression like this. We say, Dangote is filthy rich. Or some we will say stinkingly rich. Do you understand? And so, you see, there are dimensions to certain qualities, like riches, all right? And those dimensions, when you use adjectives to, to emphasize dimensions so that people can understand how far or how wide, you know, that particular quality you're trying to emphasize is. And the Bible uses this, you know, these adjectives to let us know how rich the grace of God in Christ is. All right, let's, let's begin to look into them now. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. You know, we've read Ephesians chapter 2 so many times this month. You know, how we started by talking about who we were dead in sin and what Christ has done. He says in verse 4, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love. Look, look at the adjectives. He, he, he didn't just tell us that God is love or that he loves. He says he's got great love. That's, that's, that's a qualifier. It's a qualifier here. He has great love. Listen, when you are trying to understand who's, who God is and you see this qualifier, it should form a mindset, a mentality. This is what we mean by renewing of mind. All right. So God has got great love. Whatever your perspective of love is, God has a tremendous amount of that quality. Great love. He's great in love. And he's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Listen, meaning he's never short of supply when it comes to mercy. Can I, can I tell you this? When it comes to our natural human daily day-to-day -day relationships, you see, when you have to forgive someone about the same thing, maybe twice or thrice, you become less willing to do so. But not God. And listen, someone is like, does that mean we can continue to do the wrong things? No! 
Why would you think that that means you can continue to do the wrong thing? And we're going to address that. But hey, the Bible says he's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Meaning he's not barely getting by in mercy. It's not just enough of mercy that he has. He has an abundance of it. An abundance. He, he's not trying to catch his breath. Oh, I forgave you yesterday. Uh, you two understand. He's not doing that. He's rich in mercy. These are the adjectives of grace. God is rich in mercy. Think about that. Meditate on that for, for a second. All right. Now, Jesus was asked in his earthly ministry, how many times would people have to offend us before we don't forgive? He said 70 times 7. And he's talking about a day. 70 times, 7 times, first of all, you have to be a different type of petty, you know, to be counting that 490. This is the 490th time that you have offended me today. You, you know, that's going to be a more serious case. <laughs> all right. You know, but, but the point of it, you know, that, that figure of speech, like exaggeration, is you must always be willing and ready to forgive. That's what he's trying to communicate. And the point I'm trying to draw from this is this. If God will require that from us, how much more him? If God would ask mortals to be willing to forgive 490 times in a day, how much more him? He's rich in mercy. Hallelujah. Meaning God must be willing to do more than, more than 490 times in one day. <laughs> if God asks us to forgive our neighbor, even if they offended us 490 times in a day, he must be willing to do more than that. In a manner that will make 490 infinitesimally insignificant in comparison. You have to understand this. The Bible says in Lamentations, you know Lamentations, the book you never read. Lamentations is a good book, you should read it. Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22. You know what? You can feel free to go ahead and open it just for the sake of it. You know, just so that that part of your Bible will not feel too crisp. <laughs> open it now. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22. It says, it is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. Listen, we are learning about God. Forget what you thought you knew about God before. Think about what these texts are, these texts are saying. He says his compassion does not fail. He's not a man. He's not your ex. Oh, I'm tired. And this relationship is not doing me the way it used to do me before. He's not your ex. The Bible says his compassions, they fail not. Glory to God. Meaning his love for you is going to stand the test of time. Irrespective of your shortcomings and all the growth that you require, the Bible says his compassion does not fail. Listen, this is a tested and proven God. There's history to show for it. And we're going to go into some of it as time goes on. His compassions fail not. He says next, he says there are new every morning oh glory to god new every morning new every morning just like that 70 times 7 count you know by the next morning you have to start again <laughs> even if the person had offended you um 489 times by the time it is past midnight you have to start again so it doesn't count 
You know, so the same way and even more, the love of God is new every morning, new every morning. He has abundance of love, abundance of mercy every new morning. He's never short of supply. Glory be to God. That's my God. Just in case you're wondering what the theme of the service is, the theme of the service is grace is lavish, lavish, lavish. Ha, ha, ha. Grace is lavish. It means grace is extravagant. It means it's luxurious. What does luxurious mean? It means it is beyond what is just necessary. Just enough. Just enough. All right. Just enough. You know, just, more than just enough. More than what is required. Lavish. Glory to God. Say, that's my God. Lavish in grace. Thank you, Jesus. Rich in mercy, great in love. Hallelujah. You know, let's look at verse 7. You know, verse 4 says he's rich in mercy. But verse 7 goes even deeper. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches. So he's not just rich. He's exceeding. Feel free to use these metaphors when you're describing, <laughs> comparing yourself to. Anyway, don't worry. I'm just playing. I better leave that. All right. But he says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. He's exceeding rich in grace. Oh, glory to God. Listen, the Greek word translated exceeding is a Greek word hupapalo. Hupapalo means to throw beyond the mark. Meaning the cut of um, mark for Wayek was 50 and you had 98. That's Hupapalo. <laughs> like extra for the lecturers. Glory be to some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but that's okay. <laughs> you are qualified in Christ. Alright, you know, but the point is exceeding rich in grace means to throw beyond the mark. Way beyond the mark. This is what you needed to get by, and you're right here. I put my hand above the view of the camera on purpose. So uh, that's way beyond the mark, right? Glory to God. That's the love of Christ. The love of Christ beyond the mark. Think about this. Look at this verse again. It says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There are perspectives to this. You see, let me start by saying this. There are different ideas of what grace is. If I sitting in the classroom, my pen falls, or in, in the office, my pen falls, and you help me pick it up. That's you being gracious. That's grace. But that's a dimension of grace. <laughs> but if I do something at work that warrants my being fired, and my boss chooses to retain me, even though he has every legal administrative right to let me go. Now, that's grace. It's also grace, but not the same level of grace as the example I previously gave. All right? We're not talking about picking pain for me. Can I tell you something? Anything I can do for myself, I have every right to, be, to show less appreciation for. In fact, some people, have you seen people you help you, they say you shouldn't have <laughs> because they feel, oh, well, oh, that's cute. 
Praise the Lord. Have you given someone, you know, it's a very terrible culture in this part of the world where you give someone a tip and they look at it like, you just, just say thank you so that they don't, I mean, it doesn't look more um, obvious how unappreciative they are. And some people are just like that. All right, but you shouldn't be like that. So there are dimensions to grace. I pick, you help me pick my pen from the floor, that's grace. I should be fired from work, I'm not fired, that's grace. Now, I see a hungry man on the road. I give him food, that's grace. But then I see the same man. I take him to a house, gift him that house, give him a car, give him a job, give him money. That's also grace. Do you understand? But now, the other example is lavish. God is careful to describe the quality of his own grace. You have to understand. Any understanding of grace that is not lavish is not the grace of God in Christ. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 that you were reading. It says, in the ages to come, he might show. Meaning, in his generosity in Christ, he wanted to make a statement for all age, ages. Do you know that's a different thing? It's a different thing to be generous and a different thing to do something that will be a standard of generosity for all ages. You know, um, years ago, Bill Gates and his company gave billions of dollars. I think it was $100 billion. And because of that, they coined out a new phrase. Instead of philanthropy, some people began to talk about bilanthropy. And you know, you, you, you must have, might have heard that phrase before. His generosity <laughs> made people add another word to their dictionary. That's the kind of generosity I'm talking about. A legendary generosity. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, we are talking about one single act of generosity that was going to be so legendary, it will redefine, all right, our approach or our understanding of generosity. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, that's what lavish means. Exceeding riches, one grace that the world, uh, the world would talk about forever. One act of grace. All right. We see this word Hupepalo used also comparing the old covenant and the glory thereof with the new covenant. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, 2 Corinthians 3, 10, it says, For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect. You see the comparison. You see, you, you might have called the law glorious, but when you're comparing it to grace, you, you can no longer call that glorious. It has no glory in this respect. It says, by reason of the glory that excelleth, by the reason of the exceeding glory, all right, that is in Christ, or that is in the new covenant, all right? So that's through beyond, through beyond. So again and again, we see, lavish as the description and the understanding of the grace of God in Christ. If it is not lavish, it is not God. 
If it is not lavish, it's not God. A lot of people can't understand why a presentation of the gospel will unsettle people. And they're like, ah, is it not too much? Won't people misbehave? That's the idea of lavish. And that's the biblical idea. If it doesn't get the normal person talking, it's not lavish. But the Bible says grace is lavish. Grace is lavish. I mean, the words throw beyond the mark is used time and time again. You see, there's a parable in Matthew chapter 18, and I've taught on this, when um, we're talking about walking in love, demonstrating the love of the Father. But there's another perspective to this. It is the parable in Matthew chapter 18 from verse 23, where he talks about the kingdom of heaven being likened unto a certain king. And the king decided to take account of his servants. All right. And when he had begun to reckon, he brought one of the servants that owed him 10,000 talents. Now, you might not really understand this because it's not in modern day currency. But talents, you know, people hardly even earned that much in a year. All right. People, much of spending was done in pence, not talents. You know, so the mere sounding of that was um, an obvious attempt at exaggeration so that people would be like, ah, you know. Um, if you don't see, excuse this expression, the ah part of this story, you have missed something important. He said 10,000 talents, you know, to, to drive home the point that this guy was owing so much, he couldn't, there was nothing he could do to pay back. Do you understand? And so, you, if you don't see the enormity of what he was owing, you have missed the point. And so, and now, in those days, if you couldn't pay, you and your family would be made to walk that money's worth, all right, you know, as a, in, in true servitude. So, he was ready to do that, but the guy fell on his face and said, you know what, please just give me time. I will try my best to pay, of course, even though there was nothing he could do. But instead of the master saying, if the master said, you know what, I'm giving you more time. Make sure you pay back by so-and-so time. That's grace already. But the master did not do that. Instead, he forgave him of his debts. Now, I know that when we read the story many times, we're talking about how the same servant went and refused to forgive another person. But I want to talk about it from, you know, the picture of the lavish grace of God. The reason why Jesus gave this parable is so that we can understand how generous God in his salvation plan is. Is akin to a master for giving a debt of 10,000 talents. Do you know how much that is in today's money? That's 16 million dollars. Do you know what that means? <laughs> that is in Naira? In fact, depending on the exchange rate right now, and we're talking about maybe uh, definitely way above 5 billion Naira. How do you forgive a debt of 5 billion Naira? Do you know how rich you have to be to forgive such a debt? That's who God is. That's the kind of idea he's selling to you. God is so rich, he can forgive a debt of 5 billion. Ha, 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 yeah. Maybe you're not following. Let me take that again. God is so rich, he can forgive a debt of 5 billion. I mean, it's lavish. Imagine you heard someone saying, oh, someone owed me 5 billion and I forgave him. You'd be like, 
<laughs> what? You did what? That's, that's lavish. And he's going to be like, well, I, I love him that much. That's your God. See why a lot of people hear some grace teachings and they feel like, is this not too much? Is this not too much? Meanwhile, we are barely scratching the surface in terms of the portrayal of the generosity of God in Christ. Look into the text. Look at the comparisons. Look at the examples. Look at the adjectives. He's doing way more than we are saying. It's over the top. And God is not ill-advised. But, but I'm talking about just the sheer lavish nature of it all. You have to get the idea here. Can I tell you this? Never forget this. You know, a lot of people have terms like hyper grace. Hyper grace. And they, they try to warn people about it. Can I tell you something? I'm one of the advocates standing against the irresponsible presentation of the gospel of grace. But you have to understand this. Hyper grace is not the problem. A shared conscience is. A lot of people, when they try, what they're trying to describe as hyper grace is a shared conscience. It is not biblical to suggest, all right, that the fact that what does hyper means beyond, you know, which is, which is the Bible definition of grace. And we have to be careful in, the, in our nomenclature. If, if you suggest that because the teaching is excess or the presentation is excess, that's what drove people to sin. You are saying something that is not biblical. Can I tell you something? You have to understand on one hand, all right, that if your understanding of grace is not hyper, it is not grace. It's not the grace of God. And on the, on the other hand, if your understanding of grace suggests that you can go on and sin, that's also not grace. The two must hang in balance. The true grace of God is hyper and responsible at the same time. Listen, this is the biblical balance. Don't downplay the grace of God to accommodate the excesses of men. It's big. It's rich. Okay? It's big and rich. It's, I dare say, it's hyper. If it's not hyper, it's not the grace of God. Again, I say, don't downplay the grace of God just to accommodate the excesses of men. And let me show it to you in the word of God. You know, the text that a lot of people use to caution grace preaching is Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Very powerful text, by the way. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. And it says, what then... Shall, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what it says. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, God forbid, the Greek word translated God forbid is actually a double affirmative, meaning, I mean, it's, it's inconceivable that anyone would do that. Listen, and I'm going to try to dwell on this during the midweek service just so that we have a balanced perspective to this. This is also important. All right. At the same time, we have to understand just verses before then, in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the same writer said, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. 
He says, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. In fact, the word abound already talks about the abundance and lavish. He said, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So you have to be able to reconcile the two ideas that grace abounds even more when where sin abounds. And at the same time, that's not a license to sin. Do you understand? The fact that I'm saying that God is so rich in mercy that none of my weaknesses or my frailties intimidate him or make him second guess or make him reluctant to forgive me is not an encouragement for you to go on in sin. In fact, the Bible anticipation is different. The Bible says that the goodness of God drives people to repentance. Can I tell you something? It's either you believe the word of God or not. A lot of people have a conclusion that is not biblical. They think if you hammer too much on the goodness, then people are going to be irresponsible. But the Bible says the goodness of God will drive people to repentance. Let God be true and all men liars. Do you understand that? So we, on one hand, in fact, our motivation... Our foundation in preaching people to walk a manner that is worthy of the redemptive walk, walk like people who are saved, washed by the blood, bear fruits of righteousness. The reason why we're asking people to do that is because God is so good. It's so, it's so lavish. I mean, you have all the love in the world. What are you going to look for outside? So that's our motivation. This is so important. This is so important. You know, when I was young, or much younger, I was irked by the way my mom was raising my younger brother because I wanted to be firmer on him. And many times my mom would just say, uh, don't do that again. And I'm like, what? what flog this boy. You know, and I kept doing that. In fact, many times my mom would, I'm, I'm, I'm not proud of this, but many times my mom would forgive him and I will corner him and spank him. You shouldn't have done that. You know, and all of that. And one day, I just had, you know, this moment of emotional outburst. And I told my mom, I said, you're spoiling this child. And she said something. She said, I raised you the exact same way. Did I spoil you? <laughs> you see, there is something about us that think we can handle grace, but others cannot. It's just a natural propensity that, you know, a lot of people who, you know, try to stand against the grace message, mind you, there are some presentations of the grace message that should be stood against vehemently. I just want to put that, all right. But some people are just unnecessarily, you know, reluctant about anything grace or anybody who identifies as a grace preacher or something like that, you know. And from my communication with many people like that, they have experienced this grace in such a powerful way but somehow they're just afraid that if they communicate it the way they experience it and the way they know it in the word of god that people are going to go astray the question i have for you is if you were not spout you're still in christ despite all you know and experience why do you think others would be why do you think others would be sometimes we are just we just have you know an ungodly paranoia about these things. And I, I just want to point this out. You see, vulnerability 
punctuates the grace of God. Vulnerability punctuates the grace of God. I gave you an example. If someone does something for me that I could do for myself easily, yeah, you can call that grace. But I, I, I might even say you shouldn't have. You know that you shouldn't have. I don't like that thing at all. <laughs> all right. Just say thank you and go. <laughs> you know. But, 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 that's, but that's the perspective. All right. Um, it's just like, have you seen, have, have, as a child, come to you to give you maybe five naira before? And you're, you're, you say, thank you. Oh, that's cute. And you're saying that because you are teaching the child generosity. Do you understand? You'll be a total jerk to say, come on, what is this? Do you know, what, do you know my worth? Why are you giving me five now? <laughs> you know, so you're just going to say, oh, thank you. And then if you have any conscience, which not many people have, you know, you put the money back into the child's piggy bank or something like that. <laughs> you know, but you're just like, oh, this child is so cute. Oh, this child can share and all of that. But when it is something that is beyond you, you owe the debt that you could not pay, and then Christ paid the debt that he did not owe. You know, that's how a lot of people present it. And now, he has made a statement. That's a dimension to this grace thing. And so, it applies in Luke chapter 7. The Bible talks about this woman, you know, who everybody knew to be an ungodly woman. Jesus was in of all, pla- of all places in a Pharisee's house. And the woman came in there, you know, and just fell at his feet and started rubbing her hair on his leg. You know, poured ointment on his leg and was rubbing it. And the Pharisee was irked, was irritated. He said, in fact, he said, this man is not a man of God. You know, it's funny how people are fast to conclude. <laughs> you know, um, just like there was, a, there was a picture I took with someone, and the mother, the mother of somebody, screenshot the picture and sent and said that I'm not a man of God because I took a picture with. Her. And that's a discussion for another day, because of the picture I took with someone, you know. But but just seeing that, they were like, ah, he's not a man of God. If he's a man of God, he would have known this person is a sinner. That's the kind of mentality people have about God even today that he's only going to associate with people that help his PR, that help his corporate image, you know, and stuff like that. But then, the Bible says Jesus gave an illustration. Hallelujah. The Bible says he called Simon, that's Peter, aside. He said, I want to ask you this. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 pence, and the other owed him 50 And he forgave both freely. And Jesus asked the question, tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? You know, the question says a lot about the mentality, the mindset. So whilst you are thinking, oh, I owe him so much. Can you forgive me after all I've done? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what is in my past? I don't even like to think about it. I've done too much for him to forgive. And he's thinking, if I forgive you much, you're going to love more. Because Peter says, oh, of course, the person you forgave 500 pence is going to love you more. And he says, "That's that's what is happening to this lady. 
because she has she has been forgiven much she loves much that's the mentality of god everything that you think disqualifies you from his love and his mercy he sees it as, a, as an opportunity to demonstrate his lavish and unending and limitless grace he wants to show off his grace by those things you think were so big he can't get over them I mean, you know, he's going to talk about them, bring them to my recollection every day, you know. A lady said, when I was in school, I was talking with a lady, and she says that many times when she's praying, the Lord brings memories of the things she has done in the past, you know, so that she can ask for mercy. I said, that's not the Lord, that's the devil. <laughs> that's not the Lord. That's not the Lord. That's not the Lord. And I can give you myriads of scripture upon scripture. You know, he says, your sins I will remember no more. Hallelujah. You know, that's not the Lord. You know, so he says, you, you would, you're going to love more. You're going to love more. And I just want to challenge you with this. Embrace the method of God. Don't be like me trying to question my mother's capabilities when it came to raising my younger brother. You know, I thought she was being too good. Don't be like me. All right? <laughs> because many of us act like that elder brother who will never, you know, trust the father's training methods. You're like Jonah. You know, and I've said this before in more elaborate terms in other sermons. A lot of people don't understand the story of Jonah. They think that Jonah did not want to go where God will have him go because he was shy to preach. No, that was not the case at all. You have to read the story carefully, just in case you don't know this. He, Jonah did not refuse to go to Nineveh and, he, and went to Tashis instead because he was a shy preacher. That was not the case at all. In fact, when he was on the boat, and they asked him, you know, of course there was a great storm, and the people cast lots and said, someone is the cause of this, you know, of all this trouble, and the lots fell on Jonah. And they asked him, well, what, what is it that you have done? And he just says, well, simple, straightforward, if you would throw me into this water to die, this storm will cease. What kind of mindset is that? Why didn't he say, oh, you need to take me back because I'm going the opposite direction. Take me back so I can enter the, the nearest, um, the next ship going to Nineveh. He didn't say that. He said, throw me into the water. What was it about Jonah that would prefer death to go into Nineveh? Why? Someone said he was shy. No, he wasn't. Jonah wanted to enter the ocean and die. So you see, that um, fish, that great whale that came to swallow Jonah, it wasn't the judgment of God, it was the mercy of God, it was the preservation of God. God was saying, oh, I see what you're doing. You will, you will go to that place, you will preach. That message, you must preach it. Free transport, the first submarine known to mankind took him right to where he was meant to be. Alright. And the Bible tells us in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. From verse 1. It says, 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I prayed you, Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art gracious. I knew that you are gracious God and merciful and slow to anger. Listen, this is the same thing Moses revealed about God, discovered about God. He's slow to anger, pleasures in mercy. This is who God is. He says, I know you are a gracious God. I know you are merciful and slow to anger and great in kindness and repentance thou of evil. Therefore now, O Lord, I beseech you, take my life for it is better for me to die than live. Listen, this is why he told them, throw me into the ocean. He wanted to die. He thought it better for him to die than for him to go to Nineveh. The people of Nineveh were very wicked. They had done a lot of atrocious acts. And he's saying, God, just kill all of them. Why are you asking me to go and preach to them? You are asking me to go and preach to them because you want to forgive them. And I don't want them to be forgiven. Even if you said, I should go and warn them, I know you. If they call to you, you will have mercy. And that's exactly what happened. The, the city of Nineveh, they called a fast. The Bible says even animals fasted. <laughs> animals went without food. All right, and there was a great revival in the land. Even from the way Jonah went to preach, you would know he didn't want them to be saved. He just went, not too long from now, the whole city will be overturned. No message about God, his grace, nothing. You know, a lot of people preach like that today. Jonah felt these people were not deserving of God's grace. God was so good, it annoyed Jonah. Can I tell you something? The goodness of God annoys a lot of people, annoys religious people today, annoys religious people. It annoys, but guess what? God is not going to change. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy, lavish in mercy. Say, that's my God. Hallelujah. Glory to God. This is, this is so important. Something important for you to learn about God. Make sure it does not annoy you that God is kind. Make sure. And more importantly, believe in the methods of God. Sometimes we are like Jonah. We want God to be harsh. We think that people will only, you know, we have this African school system, disciplinary system. Can I tell you something? And I'm going to say this carefully and respectfully in case my family members are watching. <laughs> my dad was a very tough man. And growing up, I was scared of him most of the time. And my mom, very calm, you know, and all of that. In fact, I felt my mom, too, was too calm sometimes. All right, but she was calm. And my dad, very tough. To tell you the truth, I didn't learn half as much from my dad as I should have. And the reason is simple. I was too scared. I was too scared. So I just didn't want trouble. So I wasn't listening to the reason, you know, the real rationale behind all the things he was saying. I just didn't want to be whooped. <laughs> it's that simple. But I had, you know, more relationship with my mom, more opportunity to learn from her why some of the things I was doing was wrong, why I should have take a different approach. You know, so I grew more in the company of my mom than with my dad. I learned from my dad just by observation. 
<laughs> if you know what I mean. You know, and it's like that for most people. Again, I'm reading that to you. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, the second part of it, that the goodness of God leads to repentance. I want you to believe that. The goodness of God leads to... So when God is showering someone with goodness, don't say that people have gone, gone soft on the preaching of the gospel. They are not preaching end time. They are not preaching, you know, that, you know, that hell is real. Mm-mm. First of all, we actually preach that, but we preach that in the light of what God has done about that. And that's why it is called good news. All right? We preach there is a hell. Oh, there is a hell. And it's not a nice place. All right? It was created for Satan and his angels. For you to know how terrible it is. All right? So it's a terrible place. But we preach what Christ has done about it. We preach that you don't have to go there. That's the good news aspect of it. You don't have to go there. And if you will believe... The Bible says, for God to love the world, he gave his only begotten son, that they which believe should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the presentation of the gospel. Present it the way Christ presented it. Can I tell you something? I will give you two scenarios, and then I will tell one more story and we'll close. If you were the one, ask yourself this objectively. If you were the one with that Samaritan woman who had married five times, would you preach the way Jesus preached? There is something about the past of people that just tell us to be subtly judgmental. We might say, oh, it is the message of the gospel that saves. But when you see, you go and preach and you see someone, you know, with ego like this. Before you know it, you just start saying, you will die. You will, you, you know, if you don't repent now, you know, and all of that. But can I tell you something? It is the same message of the gospel that we all need. You know, for Jesus to just say, I have water that if you drink, you will never thirst again. And you know, you know the interesting part of the whole thing? After he had preached and the woman believed, she wanted to run and go and preach. And she did. And Jesus didn't stop her. Hey, hey, what do you know? What do you know? In fact, don't, even, don't, don't affect my image. People will be saying, you that has married five times, you are preaching now, you are preaching now. You, you that we know. He didn't stop her. Think about that. She brought the whole city to Jesus. Think about that. Look at the case with the woman, you know, caught right in the act of adultery. And you understand Jesus telling, you know, the Pharisees, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I understand that. And I wish I had enough time to talk about that. You know, many times our definition of righteousness is just very warped. You just feel... Even though I am not perfect, because I am doing better than the other person, I have the right to judge the other person. And it doesn't work that way. You're either 100% or you're zero. So before you criticize someone, ask yourself, by my own merit, do I qualify before God? But that's besides the point. You know, so everybody drops their stones and they go. And Jesus is left with that woman. And what does he say? I want you to ask yourself objectively. Do you feel Jesus was giving people the license to sin? No, he wasn't. The goodness of God drives people to repentance. That was his idea. That was his mentality. Except if you believe Jesus didn't know what he was doing. So if we hammer on the goodness of God, we are doing preaching the Bible way. In fact, the people that Jesus was harshest to 
were the Pharisees, the religious people, the people who always felt they knew. Isn't that interesting? Final story as we talk about the lavish goodness of God. There's an interesting book of the Bible called the book of Hosea, and it has an interesting story. Hosea was a demonstrative prophet, you know, just like Agabus, you know, who took um, Paul's belt to tie his hand and said, this is how your hands will be tied, you know, if you go down to Jerusalem. So that's demonstrative. It's just like acting drama today, but, but using it to depict something prophetic God is saying. Now, God instructs Hosea. He said, you're going to go to one alley known for prostitution. And you're going to marry a prostitute named Goma. First of all, this place he's been asked to go, no man of God of his caliber should be found there. And he walks, you can imagine how uncomfortable it might have been. Maybe some people even knew him. And they got it all wrong. You know, they were like, ah, you, you, Hosea, you visit this place too? You visit this place too? You can imagine what was going through their mind. You know, but he goes there. And then now he has to pay for the ransom of this lady. He has to pay for her freedom. I don't know how many years of saving he had to pay. He had to, uh, he had to give up just for Goma to be free. But he paid the money. Goma was free. Now this is interesting. He takes Goma home. Now this is incredible. The man of men in the city, the prophet himself, Hosea, winds up with a prostitute as wife. And I don't know what must have been running through her mind every time she wakes up to see Hosea by her side. She, she could have felt, oh, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. And, you know, but that wasn't even enough for her. One day, Hosea wakes up and he doesn't see her in the house. Maybe it was even, you know, I don't know, the fact that it all looked too real for her. That's why she ran away. It doesn't really matter. That's not the point here. But he looked around and he didn't see her. Guess what she is, where she was? She had gone back to her old ways. And then God speaks. Now, this is, this is the part that gets me. Don't forget, we're talking about the dimensions of grace here. Hosea marrying Goma was already gracious. Paying such a handsome ransom for Goma was already gracious. But that he wakes up and Goma is nowhere to be found... And then God speaks. And he says, you're going to go back there. And you're going to see Goma right where you met her at first. And you're going to woo her again. This is the difficult part. You're not going to say, look at you. So you mean I have to save you again? You know, you're not, you're not going to do that again. You are going to go there and reaffirm your love for her. Do you know how difficult that is? You're going to woo her again and persuade her again that she is worth your love and she has no reason to run away. And even if she has done something very terrible, she always has a place in your home. You're going to go back there again and woo her afresh, toast her afresh. Ask her out again. 
and here is the part you're going to pay another ransom can i tell you something the story of hosea and the story of the prodigal son they have one thing in common is the revelation of the lavish supply of god such that what you squander is still available i mean that guy took away his part of the inheritance went and squandered it but when he got back there was still a robe for him to wear there was still a car for to be slaughtered for his party he still had home a place in that home so we are talking about you know the lavish nature of god how exceeding rich he is that even your shortcomings cannot exhaust his supply that's what we are talking about here someone is like oh people are going to abuse this it's the word that's what the word of god says so what goma went back and you're going to redeem her again there was enough for that that's your god and this generosity is not going to make people irresponsible it's going to drive them more have you have you seen a woman in love all other men are dead to her dead dead to a woman no other man exists to a woman in love a woman who is satisfied when we receive the love of god every other thing will be dead to us that's what the bible says the goodness of god leads us to repentance i'm going to end with isaiah chapter 54 Isaiah chapter 54 from verse 9. Thank you, Jesus. It says, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. I read this last week. It says, For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wrought with you, nor rebuke thee. I won't cast you away from my presence. You don't need to sing that song of David. Cast me not away from your presence. He says, I won't do that. He says, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. He says, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of peace be removed, saith the Lord that had mercy on thee. His love is without limits. His mercy is without end. His grace is lavish the songwriter says the overwhelming never-ending reckless love of God it chases me down and fights till I'm found leaves the 99 that's his love just worship him right now thank him for his love thank you for listening we are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809-996-7000. Blessings.